0: If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Titus chapter 2. Um, if you don't have the Bible, the scripture that we're going to be looking at is in your bulletin uh, on the inside cover. There's also a place to take notes. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 to 15. Friends, listen. This is God's word. and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. We are in a series looking at how to understand, how to simplify our spiritual lives. And the idea is: How can we wrap our minds around all that God expects from us? For so many of us, we feel like our lives are never finished. We feel like we're constantly juggling, but there's still balls on the ground that we're not even touching. Right? This is the way that life feels. We feel like there's always more that we think we should be doing. Um, and in that, like, is there a way to simplify lives? Is there a way to make it simpler so that we know we've got the most important things? Well, Titus says yes. Titus says yes, there is a way that you can simplify your spiritual life. Uh, This short letter summarizes the spiritual life that God expects from us. Uh, These are the balls that you need to learn how to juggle so that you can have a growing spiritual life. And there aren't that many. Uh, I want to start with a review. Gary, can you... Advance us. So just this is where we've been, right? We've been, the the, the simple, the spiritual life made simple. It starts with God, God and his promises. You need to have a relationship with him and a growing knowledge of his promises. And then you need elders. These are leaders that will direct you to God and his promises. And then last week, we saw that you need community. You need community, older and younger people together, following Jesus Together, and you need this community for you, and also it's you for others, right? There is a giving and a receiving that comes that's part of your thriving spiritual life. It's part of the thriving spiritual life. And so, Gary, next slide. Um, What's next? Go ahead, one more. What's next is that you need grace, okay? You need grace. Paul says, you need God, you need elders, you need community. And it's not like this is the first time he's talked about grace. But after speaking about the community, after talking about what God wants from older men and older women, what God wants from younger men and younger women, Paul comes and he says, you need grace. You need grace. And what we have in this paragraph in Titus it's, I mean, if, it's like a summary of the good news of the Bible. This is one of the places where if you only had 30 seconds with someone, this would be a place that you'd want to take them to help them understand, like, what is such a big deal about Jesus? When you think about summarizing the message of the gospel, I don't think there's a better word than Grace. Grace teaches you about God. Grace helps you know who should be elders in the church. Right? And grace is what characterizes the community of the church. Okay? And so in this passage, we're going to see really two things. Go to the next slide. We're going to see two things. Grace appeared in Jesus. And then second, grace appears in us. The idea is that when you see it, you can be it. When you see grace... It will make you gracious. And so let's just look at this first point, that grace has appeared in Jesus. It, it starts with verse 11. Look there in your bulletin. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And I want you to, it's, it's amazing, this paragraph starts, and you're going to see the power of a simple word. Right? It's the word for. Right? See the word for? It's the first Word of this paragraph. For. What does the word for mean? In this case, it means because. It means because. And what we see here is that this paragraph is actually the reason that underlies what the community of God's people are supposed to be in verses 1 to 10. Okay? The reason why older men and older women act in the way God wants them to act is for or because the grace of God has appeared. Okay, do you follow me? The reason why younger men and younger women act the way God wants them to act is for or because the grace of God has appeared. So we follow Jesus. We obey Jesus because God's grace has appeared. Okay, religion says you need to obey in order to receive God's blessings. But the gospel says we obey because we have received God's blessings. For means that it means gospel grace, not religion. Okay, And, and what is grace? Well, grace is God's favor. It's God's favor. And God's favor is so many things. It's all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ but summarily, if we're going to sum it all up, I think one of the best ways to summarize what grace is is it means that God is on your side. The grace of God has appeared. That means that God is on your side. God is on your side. And we like to say, here at Harvard, we like to say God's grace is extravagant. God's grace is extravagant. Think about it. It's extravagant because of how much of his favor, he gives us. He gives us forgiveness and acceptance, adoption, hope, regeneration, his presence in us, power, purpose, mission, right? All of this is God's grace. But it's also extravagant because we don't deserve it. Right? Not only is God, is this inheritance, these blessings that God gives us extravagant, but when you think about the fact that we didn't earn these, this favor, it heightens God's grace even more. And then when you think about it, it's even more than that, because it's not just that we haven't earned God's favor. What we've actually earned from God, if we're going to talk about those categories of what we've earned from God, what we've earned is punishment. Right? For all the time we've spent living apart from him. For all the time we've been in a relationship in, with him and we've pursued other things. Right? When we've ignored him, this is sin. And yet, God's grace has appeared. God's undeserved, unearned, extravagant favor has appeared in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God has chosen not to condemn the world, but to save it. God has responded to our sin not by cutting bait. And letting us go but by reeling us in through Jesus and that's what happens right it says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people so it's not just to some people right it's not just a certain it's not just a one nation right that would have been the big point that Paul was trying to make as he's writing this letter because the Jews of Paul's day believe that they were God's chosen people They believe that they and they alone were heirs and inheritors of the blessings and the grace of God. And Paul says, no, 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 it's not just you, it's to all people. It's salvation for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so God brings salvation, which is rescue, redemption, restoration, so that we can live life as he intended. Right? Salvation, it's the climax of, God, of, of our goals and our purposes for living. Salvation, it's the difference between where you are now and total perfection. Right? That's what salvation is. Salvation brings you from exactly where you are now and isn't going to be finished with you. You won't experience the fullness of your salvation until you have been made Perfect. That's what salvation is. It's perfect peace and rest with God. It's perfect peace in relationships with others. Right? It's actually learning to accept and celebrate yourself and to be at peace with the world. Now, how has this grace of God appeared? How has this salvation been brought about? Well, it's obviously been brought about in Jesus, um, but verse 14 makes it clear how it happened. Look at verse 14, it says, it's talking about Jesus it says, "Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness." He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This word redeem is such a key term. It's so colorfully it pictures Um, what salvation means and what it looks like. Uh, One scholar said this, redeem needs to be understood in light of ancient slavery. To redeem someone in antiquity meant to purchase their freedom either from slavery or by way of ransom from pirates or kidnappers. And so in this passage here, slavery is to sin and captivity is is to the deathly consequences. And the captivity into sin and its consequences are portrayed as the chains that only our great God and Savior could break by giving himself over to death in our place. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He redeemed us by giving himself. He gave his life for ours. He died so that we might live. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin. And when Paul thinks about this, when Paul contemplates the grace that is revealed in Jesus, Paul's summary description of Jesus is in verse 13. He says that Jesus is our great God and Savior. You see that phrase? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't just a Savior. He's God. And he's not just God, but he is a great God. He is great. This means that Jesus is more important than anything else in your life. Okay, you want to talk about simplifying your life. This is one powerful truth that if you hold on to this, it will simplify lots and lots of things for you. If you realize that God is great, if you realize that He is greater and more important than anything else, if you put Him first, your life will become simpler. And this is one of these verses that causes trouble for some scholars and commentators who don't believe that the Bible ever says that Jesus is God. Um, there are some, just a scholarly point, just I want to make sure that you're aware of this verse and you're aware of some of the things that, are, that, are, that are scholars try to do to this. Sometimes scholars, because they have an aversion, they think that Jesus can't be God, And so they will actually translate this verse and say that it's the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they'll say, no, 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 Paul's talking about two different people. You have God on the one hand, and then you have Jesus on the other. God is great, and Jesus is the Savior. Um, the, the, The text in the Greek is just abundantly clear. That what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is both our God and our Savior. If you ever wonder, if you ever talk to people that don't believe that the New Testament actually says that Jesus is God, this is one of the places that you can take them to. The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's powerful if if you run through Titus and just circle the words Savior and God, and you can see that God is called Savior. Um, God is called Savior. Jesus is called Savior. I mean, if you just look in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, um, Paul says, My preaching is by the command of God our Savior. So as far as Paul is concerned, God is our Savior. And yet here, Jesus is also our Savior. And so Jesus is God. And what I love about this is that the one who is great, the great one, showed us the definition of greatness. Right? You can tell what greatness is by looking at the one who is great. And what has this great one done? He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. True greatness, true greatness in the sight of God is serving those who need rescue. It's sacrifice. This is God's grace. Grace. This is God's grace, and it changes us. It changes everything about us. That's what we're going to see next. We've seen grace appeared in Jesus. Second, grace appears in us. Grace appears in us. Look at verse 12. It says, training us. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so this is interesting because grace trains us. And I say it's interesting because it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. Right? Grace. If grace is God's free forgiveness, if it's his wiping the slate clean, it's a, it's a clean bill of health, it's a, you know, I mean, everything you've done is forgiven, then it would seem like grace would actually free us to do whatever we want, right? If God forgives you, then what difference does it make what you do? And yet that's not what the verse says. Verse 12 said that, says that this grace actually trains us. Grace trains us. It teaches us about God. It teaches about what God is like. It teaches us what God has done for us. And as we see it in God, we become like it. As we see the grace of God that's appeared, that grace begins to appear in us. The more we see of God, the more we want Him, the more we want to be like Him. If you don't want to be like God, then maybe you haven't received His grace. If you don't have a burning desire in your heart to be like your Heavenly Father, you might not be one of His children. Because this grace, when we receive it, It trains us. It trains us. It actually teaches us to want to become more like God. It actually pushes us to repent, to turn away from the things that aren't like God and to turn fully toward Him. Grace teaches us that we can do this. It teaches us that it's safe to do this. Right? We know that God loves us. We know that God cares about us. And so there are things that we leave behind. And then there's things that we embrace. Um, A pastor friend of mine put on Facebook a quote that I thought was really great. And um, this is what he said. He said, additional laws, awareness, or education will not change human behavior. Additional laws, awareness, or education will not change human behavior. To change human behavior, the human must be changed. You can't force someone to be different by putting restrictions around them and on outside of them and if you don't change their heart. They need to be changed from the inside. And that's, that's what grace does. We've seen God's extravagant grace as Jesus doesn't just work for us, but he works in us to make us new on the inside. Right? And so God's grace teaches us. God's grace changes us. It trains us in a way that makes us different. I was thinking this week that the story of human history can be thought about as, it's like the story of someone who was hired to do a job. It was a really important job that was well-paid and had significant authority. Um, but instead of doing the job, that person, that new employee, served himself. Right? He spent the money that he got, he used his status to make himself look good, In front of others, and then he used his company's resources to his own gain. When the boss finds out, and the boss comes, and when the boss shows up, when the boss appears, the boss actually begins to do the job that that employee was supposed to do. And then the boss turns to the employee and says, Come join me. You can see that the work isn't done. I want you to join me in the work. Risky? Yeah. How do you trust someone like that? Who's already proven untrustworthy. And yet God believes that grace will train us to become all that he's created us to be. God takes a chance on human beings. And, and don't get me wrong, there are things that God, the boss, had to come and do that the employee could never do. Right? Because once the employee begins to, uh, gets to sin, begins to, gets to build for himself an empire, begins to do things that he's not supposed to do, the boss has to come and fix that. Right? And so there's some things Jesus does that we can't join him in. He's got to do it alone, on his own. He offered himself once for all. Right? But he turns to us and he says come and join me in the work. The work of bringing salvation. Not just to people, but to homes, to neighborhoods, to workplaces. Help people to understand what it's like to experience salvation. And so how does this train us? How does this grace train us? Well, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. Look at verse 12. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So to renounce means to repudiate these things that don't reflect God and his character. Okay? You don't want to play with sin. You don't want to wink at it. You don't want to think it's cute. You don't want to make comfortable hidden parts of your life where you can enjoy sin. This says that you need to renounce ungodliness. You need to renounce it. You need to repudiate it. You need to refuse to consent with it. Okay? In some ways, one of the images that is helpful to me when I think about temptation is I feel like temptation knocks on the door and is inviting me out for a good time. This is what temptation does in my life. It's got great things it wants to offer. Pleasure, control, satisfaction. Come on, let's go. Man, this passage is telling us we need to slam the door in the face of temptation. Temptation. Right? We refuse to consent with it. We repudiate it. And so God's extravagant grace, it trains us to holistically repent. Right? God's grace touches every area of our life, and so we actually want to respond to God's grace by repenting, by turning from anything that's not of him and coming back and being face-to-face with him. We don't want to entertain or consent with lusts, right? With worldly passions. These are things that don't promote God or promote His ways. Um, I mean, just thinking specifically: pornography, sexual lust. Those are world. That's a worldly passion, right? Materialism is a worldly passion that we need to renounce, right? The need for more stuff, newer stuff, better stuff. That is a passion in us that needs to be renounced, right? Power and the need to have control, anger that feeds your selfishness. These are worldly passions. We need to identify these things so that we can renounce them. We can declare them for the evil that they are. We can declare them for the ways and repudiate them for the ways that they pull us away from God. They cause us to turn our back on him, right? Right? Why isn't God in my life? Why don't I feel closer to God? Well, it's possible that there's some things in your life that you need to renounce. God's grace trains us to renounce these things and turn back to him. And when we do this, it changes. Right? This changes what we think about what God is like. Right? God's not a killjoy. He doesn't tell us things because he's mean. He doesn't tell us things because he doesn't want us to have fun. He tells us these things because he wants us to experience life to the fullest. Your best life possible, most satisfying, most productive, most useful, most fulfilling, right, is a life that's following Jesus. And when you realize that, and you begin to embrace God's ways, it changes you, and it begins to appear in you, because you put off ungodliness and worldly passions, and you begin to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, You begin to live like God. You begin to treat other people the way God treats them. Your heart changes toward others. Your responses to situations changes because you become more like God. Because as you receive God's grace, you become more like him. Um, We had a friend, a good friend, um, come to us and ask us for money this week. And uh, it was a pretty significant amount of money. He felt really uncomfortable asking, but he didn't know what else to do. And, um, and so as we thought of, you know, we were talking about it. We were asking him what it was for. We were talking to him about the decisions that he's made to get to this place. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to assure us that he was going to pay us back in 30 days. And he's like, this is what's going to happen. And I know we're going to, you know, and this is going to happen. So I know I have the money. I'll pay you back, in, you know, within 30 days. And, um, and as Laney and I were talking to him, I mean, I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to check with Laney. Um, But I told him, I said, look, we're going to think about this together because we need to make this decision together. But one thing I know for sure, that if we can help you in this way, we're going to give you this money and you don't have to pay us back. Our love for you, our desire to have a friendship with you is so much more important than this amount of money. And we want you to know that there's no way that we're going to let money stand in the way of our relationship. Because if, any, if you want to pay us back, that's great. That's fine. If you feel better about doing that, that's fine. But you won't need to. And he just he started crying. He started crying. and I mean, and I just said, Dave, we, we love you. We love you. And we'll give you this money. Because that's what God has done for us. Right? Grace changes us. So Paul goes on. talks about how we're being trained. And part of the training, this is interesting. Uh, <laughs> this is deeper into the experience of being trained by grace. Okay? And it's verse 13. That being trained by grace includes, um, it includes waiting. It includes waiting. You see that in verse 13? It says we are waiting for our blessed hope. Right? We are waiting for something. And it's, it's great because in verse 11, it says the grace of God has appeared. And then in verse 13, we see that there's something else that's going to appear in the future. And it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are waiting for that. We're waiting for that. It's coming. We don't have it, but we don't have it yet. We don't have it yet, but there's no doubt in our minds that it is coming, okay? This glory that's going to be revealed, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's actually going to bring the fullness of our salvation. He is going to finish the work that he began when he came the first time. Jesus is going to bring the consummation of all things. He's going to bring that perfection, the perfection for you, the perfection for your relationships, the perfection of your body, the perfection of your relationship with God, with other people, with yourself, and with the world. He's going to bring that. That's what his glory is. The glory of God is life as God intended. It's the fullness of perfection. And it's coming. It's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we don't hope for it, because we're ho- we don't hope for it in uncertainty the only reason we still call it hope is because we don't have it all yet okay but our hope in the future is certain right and the reason it's certain is because we've already begun to experience it it has appeared already god's grace and the salvation that he brings is the beginning of it it's the movie trailer right it's the trailer so that you'll know what the future movie is going to look like and because we've experienced it and it's real that's why it's sure in the future in chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 it says that God promised this long ages ago but now it has been revealed in the gospel it's been revealed and so we live this way this new way now while we wait while we wait. And one of the things I love about this, about this passage is that last phrase of verse 12. Um, it says that we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. Um, in the Greek, it just says, in the age that is now. In the age that is now. Right? This idea of salvation, which is going to be consummated in the future, it's come into the present. Right, this is why we sing, heaven come in the here and now. This is Christ appearing, and in his work he destroys the power of sin. He reverses the effects and the power of sin, and he gives us the opportunity to begin to live eternally now. That's what the text says. We live this way in the present age. Right? It's like when a, you hear a song that just came out, and none of your friends know it but it powerfully speaks to you, and it kind of changes the way you think about reality, right? This song, like, hits you, and the chorus just strikes you in a way that makes, it really changes the way you think about life. And it's beginning to change you. It affects you. It makes you feel more secure about life. But your friends don't know it yet. Like, your friends haven't heard the song yet, and so here you are, and you're living to the beat of this new song, and to its lyrics, Right, it's come in the here and the now, even before the people around you have experienced it. Right, that's what this is like. It's in the present age. You know, this is news that God's grace has appeared. Right? God has come in Jesus. I think about, I think about people like a like a cup of black water, dirty water, and eternal life is. Pouring clean water into that cup. And that's like our experience today. Our experience is that we have these water with dirty water, with these cups of dirty water in them, and God pours the clean water of the eternal life into those. And we see that over time, it becomes more and more and more pure. God isn't going to make you perfect in this life. We are still waiting for the blessed hope where the glory of God is fully revealed. But the gospel is the thing. The grace of God is the thing that will will perfect you now, okay? So the more of the gospel you can get into your life, the more uh, of the future perfection you'll experience, okay? Do you follow me? The gospel is is the grace of God, right? It's God's grace revealed, and the more of the gospel you get, the more clean water will be poured into you. In the future, you're going to get a whole new glass, right? God's going give you a whole new body. You're going to be perfected. But until that time, until that time, the more of the gospel you can get into your life, the more of his experience, the more eternal life you'll experience. This is why we focus on the gospel all the time. This is why we're a gospel-centered church, because this is what it does both now and in the future. And uh, so the last thing that we need to see is the rest of verse 14, right? That Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And then look what it says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he redeems us. He sets us free. But then he did this to purify for himself a people. To purify for himself a people. You know what this means? God is not just for us, but we are for him. You are for God. You are for God. Jesus did everything that he did so that you would live for him. This is the call of grace, right? It forgives, it makes things right, it accepts us. And then grace says, I want you to follow. You are now for me. Jesus calls us to discipleship. He calls us to follow him, to real obedience. He has a plan for the world to bring renewal and he wants us to be a part of his plan, He wants us to work with him to undo destruction, injustice, and the selfishness of sin. Okay, he calls for it and he says, this is what I'm doing and I'm inviting you to do it with me. If you don't do this with me, you're going to be cut off from me. And so we have to remember this. Like, this is, like, there are times where we talk about the grace of God so much that we can get to a place where we think, yeah, God is this sort of kind of weak, mamsy-pamsy, kind of like, oh, I really hope you'll follow me. I've done all these things for you, and can't you just come and follow me? Like, won't you please follow me? Like, look at all that I've done. You really should follow Like, I've done all these things for you. You should follow me. What God says is, look, I did these things for you to show you that I love you, and I'm calling you to be my people. I'm calling you to live for me. This is important. It's important for us to understand that God is the authority. He is the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our authority. And what he wants, it's kind of interesting, what he wants are zealots. He wants zealots. People who are beside themselves eager. For what? For good works. Let's the end of verse 14. He wants people who are zealous for good works. Now we think about zealots today and not a good thing to be a zealot. right? All the examples that we'd come up with, not happy examples, not the kinds of things you want to have in your mind as you think about Right? We tend to think about people that will take up sort of military might to fight for God. I think is one of the, actually that was one of the definitions of a zealot in Jesus' day. Um, there were people who said we can bring the kingdom in by stomping the oppressive Roman government. By overturning the Jewish regime, we can bring in God's kingdom. And yet here where Paul says, he's like, yeah, Jesus wants zealots, but not that kind. Jesus wants people who are zealous for good works. Jesus says, look, one of the things that I want to do in you is I want to put in you a desire. I want a desire in every one of you to do great things, to care for people, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I know it's hard. Jesus says, I know it's hard. And when you're tired, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me because I will receive you and I will fill you up again. Because when your desire runs dry, my desire never runs dry. And I will put in you, and I will fill you up and give you a renewed desire for good works. But this is what he calls us to. His grace has appeared in Jesus. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation to us so that we then would manifest his grace in the zeal that we have, in the strong desire for good works. What would it look like for you to be zealous for good works? Have you ever been zealous for God? Have you ever just had a strong desire? I'm not talking about, I mean, zealous can look lots of different ways. For me, it looks like crazy, emotional, like outward. You know, for other people, it looks like Just a very firm and constant, unceasing commitment to taking care of the people around you. For some people, it looks like words. For other people, it looks like actions. What does it look like for you to be zealous? What are the good works that God has created you to walk in? When you begin to understand the answer to that question and you begin to walk in that, you grow in your experience of eternal life. You begin even more to experience what life will be like when Jesus comes back. What could we do in San Diego to prepare San Diego for Jesus' return? In what ways could we live In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our workplaces, to in effect roll out the red carpet for when he comes back. Let's pray. Jesus, we are both moved by your grace that has appeared for us. We are compelled by your grace. And there is in us, Lord, there is in us a desire to be zealous for good works. We want to want to be zealous for you. We want to want to be eager uh, to do good things for people around us. There is in us a, a picture that's forming, a picture of our lives and what it would look like for us to be zealous for good works. And we just confess that so often we don't live this out. We aren't zealous for good works. We're zealous to receive all your blessings. We are zealous to come and to receive the grace that you have given us, the assurance that everything's okay, the assurance that even though we're not perfect, you still forgive us and you love us. But when we're honest, Lord, we're often, we don't return. The zeal that you have for us, we don't have it in return. We confess that, Lord. And we commit, or we commit as your, as your brothers and sisters, Father, we commit as your children, that we want to be zealous this week for good works. We want this week to be characterized by our zeal in us, by a strong, unyielding commitment to letting your grace appear in our lives. Make it so, in Jesus' name. Amen.